Well, hello, everyone. Um, again, welcome, welcome to Recovery Jam. I'm Janet B, recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And tonight, um, I'm going to talk about Bill's story. And what I think is really cool about Bill's story is if we go through, um, we can find 10 different things that Bill tried to stop that didn't work. And then we'll find what he did that ultimately did work. So I'm not going to spend too much time on, you know, kind of the illness stuff, because I want to get to the really good stuff, the miracle part. So if you have your books, Bill's story opens on page one, and he talks about um, going to war. And he says, um, I was part of life at last. And in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. And later on, he says, um, I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people. And concerning drink i was lonely and again turned to alcohol so here's a couple things that didn't help him changing circumstances things were really bad and that's when he just he turned to alcohol when he was lonely and then when he said i was part of life it was hilarious exciting and i discovered alcohol so if we think that changing our circumstance is going to help us recover Probably not, right? We've all heard geographics don't work. So Bill tried that, right? Different things. The second thing is he says, I forgot the strong warnings I heard. How come he forgot them, right? Like what if someone says to me, look both ways before you cross the street, because if you don't and a truck hits you, you're going to be roadkill. I'm going to remember that, right? I'm going to look both ways before I cross the street. Or, you know, if the doctor says, you know, before you take that antibiotic, make sure you take it with food. Otherwise, you're going to get a really bad stomach ache. I'm going to remember and do that. But something as um, important as alcohol and the dangers of it, Bill forgot the warnings and why. And we've talked about this before, that in people like us, the connection between our memory and our conscious mind is broken. So he could have heard alcohol is bad for you. But then when he wanted to take a drink, it's like that strong warning, alcohol is bad for you, can't make it across to his conscious mind to stop him. Strong warnings of other people never did anything for us. So there's Bill, he goes to war, he comes back from war. He um, goes to law school and what happens to him? He says, at one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Um, I went to law school and in law school, in most classes, 100% of your grade is just based on how you do on that one final exam. So this is pretty important. So I would say number three is necessity. Bill needed to be sober when he took his final exam and he couldn't. Necessity doesn't help. So if I say, well, I need to lose weight so I can you know, fit into that nice dress when I go to the wedding next month, I need to lose weight because the doctor told me that my blood pressure is dangerously high. Necessity does not do it for people like us. So Bill goes through, he finished law school and said, the law is not for me. 
you know, three years. And then it's like, nope, not for him. He was interested in business. So there he went. Life is really good for a while. And then what happens? The stock market crashes. Things get bad. Um, but, you know, he was still okay. Page four, we hear him saying, okay. I was determined to win again. And the next morning I called a friend in Montreal and went to Canada. So again, he's trying a geographic, but he's able to stop for short periods of time until page five, where he says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. See, at some point, um, maybe we could have stopped. You know, a lot of us can think back to a time where yeah, they could have stopped if they wanted to. I can't. By the age of four, I couldn't have stopped. Um, but here was Bill. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And once we cross the line where it's a necessity, we can't save ourselves anymore. We need to be rescued. It's like we're in quicksand or an undertow. We need to be rescued. And he says, things get worse. He loses his house. Um, but then you know, maybe he says, I got this great business opportunity. Um, things are going to work. He says, and then I went on a prodigious bender. I don't know the word prodigious. I guess it means like really bad, um, a really bad bender. And that chance vanished. So here he is. And what does he do? He says, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. So he knew, you know, we may say our alcoholic foods, he knew his alcoholic threshold, which was zero. He could not have one drink. He said, I was through. I had written lots of sweet promises before, but my wife happily observed this time I meant business. And so I did. So the fourth thing he tried, commitment, really meaning business. Well, that doesn't help. You know, think of um, a poor cancer patient whose cancer cells are multiplying and says, I am committed to make my cancer cells stop multiplying. Our hearts would break because we would know that no matter how sincere that person was, they couldn't do it. They didn't have the power. Commitment alone wouldn't do it because lack of commitment is not our problem. It's lack of power. Um, you know, and then Bill, what happens? He means business but he keeps getting drunk. And he says, what is this? And he said, I began to wonder if I was crazy, bottom of page five, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that, a lack of perspective, thinking I can do things that, you know, that time and time again, I see that I can't do. Um, I sometimes still think I have the knees of a 20 year old. So I'll go to the gym and I'll do squats and leg presses and I'll come home. And just like right now, I had to put like this little old brace on my knee because I'm not 25 and I can't work out like I'm 25. And sometimes I have a lack of perspective at the gym, um, but it's not dire, right? I rest my knee for a few days and then I'm fine. Um, but not so with Bill, because what happened? So page six, one day he goes into a cafe to use a telephone. 
not really smart. Can you imagine? It's like, you know, someone who's newly abstinent walking into Haagen-Dazs to use the phone, which is all the way in the back of the ice cream store. Not real bright. And what happened? He gets drunk. But what does he tell himself? I would ma I'll manage better next time, but I may as well get good and drunk now. So number five is what I call the pillow cure. I'll do whatever I want now because I'll be able to start tomorrow. Eight hours with my head on a pillow and that will suddenly give me the power that I didn't have before. So the pillow cure or the I'll start tomorrow syndrome, it doesn't work. And then what happened? The next day, that magic pillow didn't work. And he says, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. You know, normally remorse, horror, and hopelessness convince us we shouldn't do the thing again. Um, we've uh, probably, a lot of us have had the experience of going to the beach and not putting on sunscreen because we wanted a really good tan. And then to our horror, our skin is peeling off, our face is bright red. And so what do we do? The next time we go to the beach, we put on sunscreen, right? Because we don't want to go through that again. But for an alcoholic or a compulsive eater, remorse, what is remorse? Like guilt, strong guilt. It doesn't do it. Horror, looking at ourselves like gaining weight or throwing up all the time. Um, it doesn't do it. And feeling hopeless doesn't do it. The only time hopelessness is good is right if when at the moment someone is hopeless and they really get that they are hopeless for good and all, someone presents them with a solution. But plain old feeling hopeless, horrified, remorseful, doesn't do it. And so their bill is gone and he goes on for two more years. He steals from his wife. Um, he tries all sorts of things, going to a hospital, trying different kinds of rehabilitation and it doesn't work. Um, and he says, page seven, understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three, for three or four months, the goose hung high. I've no idea what that means, um, but we'll keep going. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. So two things here. Bill had a desire, but a desire without spiritual help doesn't work, right? Anyone with um, cancer has a desire for her cancer cells to stop multiplying. Desire alone doesn't work. And then he says, this was the answer, self-knowledge. Well, self-knowledge doesn't work, right? I could know if I had cancer, I could know exactly how I got it, which people generally don't, but let's say I do, you know, let's say I live near, I don't know, a power plant that I ended up with cancer. Okay, so what? Now I know why I have it. It doesn't make it go away. Self-knowledge doesn't help. Page eight, we see again, along with the remorse, horror, and hopelessness, loneliness, despair, and self-pity. And how does he describe his bottom? 
Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. And he still didn't stop. Because here's number nine. A first step alone does nothing. I can admit I'm powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. That admission alone gets me nowhere, does nothing. And then number 10, trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. And then he drank again. So number 10 is fear. So a doctor telling us that if we don't lose weight, we're going to have a heart attack. That doesn't do it. Um, I, you guys have heard me say, I met a woman once at an OA convention who was diabetic and the doctor told her if she didn't stop um, eating compulsively and lose some weight, she would it would affect her eyes and her kidney. When I met her, she had a seeing eye dog because she was blind and she was waiting for dialysis, waiting for a kidney transplant. Fear doesn't do it. And again, if we think of another illness, back to cancer, someone said to you, you know, if you don't make your cancer cells stop multiplying, um, then you're going to die. Who would ever say, oh, I'm so glad you gave me that information. And now I'm really scared. Okay, now I'll make my cancer cells stop multiplying. That never happens because fear doesn't do it. Fear isn't from God. So it can't help. So here's Bill. You know, he's tried everything. And he just says, everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. But then look at the, the turn in the story, how dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch, my last binge. I was soon to be catapulted. I love that word. Not I took myself. I was catapulted, I was rescued into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. You know, I always think of like in The Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white to color, well, life becomes in color. So before, top of the page, he had loneliness, despair, and self-pity. And what does he get now? Happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Because just like this illness is progressive, recovery is progressive. So once we get into recovery and start living this way of life, it just keeps getting better and better. So let's find out how it happened, how God launched his search and rescue mission for Bill Wilson. So it's November. Bill is drinking in his kitchen and he's thinking, how am I going to keep drinking? And then the phone rings and an old friend who he used to drink with asked if he could come over. Now, Bill was in New York at this time. His friend did not live in New York. It had been years since his friend, Abby, had come to New York. Um, but Abby just happened, I say with air quotes, to be in New York. And he just happened to call Bill and say, hey, Bill, can I come over? And Bill's like, sure. Bill didn't care about Abby. He just said, we could drink together. Great. I don't have to drink all by myself. Um, it's an oasis. This is wonderful. Um, and that's what he thought about. 
So remember, he was drinking and planning to drink more when Ebby came. Ebby did not knock on his door and say, Bill, you're drinking. I'll come back when you have 48 hours. Ebby went in and talked to him. And he looked at Ebby and he said, something was different. And he invited him in and he did, of course, what he did. He pushed a drink across the table. Here, Ebby, have a drink. And, you know, he said, no. Um, and Bill says, what had got into him? He wasn't himself. He didn't look like himself. He didn't act like himself. Well, of course not. A butterfly doesn't look like a caterpillar anymore because Ebby had been transformed. So he asked, okay, what's going on? And Ebby just says, I've got religion. No sugarcoating God. So let's be clear, like what the definition of religion is. The belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. So when we say like it's God as you understand him, it's not doorknob as you understand him or light bulb as you understand him. Because the definition is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. Now, I might conceive of God differently than you conceive of God, but I think we can agree that a light bulb is not a superhuman controlling power that can be personal to us. So Abby didn't sugar, sugarcoat it, didn't um, dummy it down so that it would appeal to Bill and give God like some pet name. He said, I've got religion. And Bill's reaction was, he says, I was aghast. Like, what the heck? He was an alcoholic crackpot. Now he's a religious crackpot. He's like, yeah, whatever, let him rant. My gin's gonna last longer than his words. And he says, but Abby didn't rant. He just quietly said he'd been drunk, so drunk he was about to be committed for alcoholism. And two men had appeared in court and persuaded the judge to suspend his commitment. I believe that one of the men who persuaded the judge was obviously a recovered alcoholic. And the judge was like his uncle or something, just happened to be his uncle. If I have it wrong, someone put the right thing in the chat. I'm right. Some, it's something like that, that you know these guys just happened to know the judge. And they said, judge, give us a little time. We know what can fix him, fix him, a combination of two things, a simple religious idea. Again, there's that word. Imagine they use that word in court, a simple religious idea. Again, belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God, a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. Clean house, clean up our past, help others. That's it. And they said that was two, two months ago and the results were self-evident. It worked. Two months. So I know in some programs they say you, you know, you can't sponsor till you've been abstinent X number of days. They didn't go by that here. They went by, have you gone through the process? 
have you gone through the steps? Early on, they didn't have 12 steps. They did things in the Oxford groups and then they had six steps for a while. But had you gone through the basic process of surrendering your life to God, clearing up the wreckage of your past, committing to help others and living a life of prayer and meditation? Two months. And now here's Ebby thinking, who can I help? Uh, I'm in New York on business. Let me call Bill. Two months. So anyone who's binging now, February 2nd, April 2nd, you can be knocking on someone's door, carrying a message of hope. You can be their butterfly that they are looking at. So he says, Ebby came to pass his experience on to me if I cared to have it. And he said, I was shocked, but I was interested. And then here's what he says, top of page 10. Certainly I was interested. I had to be for I was hopeless. So if someone comes around and they don't feel hopeless, it's like, yeah, you know, I'd like to like lose 10 pounds, look good for my high school reunion. Um, they're probably not going to be interested because this program is a lot of work. Um, but when someone is hopeless, we want them to feel hopeless. We don't want to tell people, oh, don't worry, it'll get better. You know what? It doesn't get better. Um, I was going to meetings and I first started I was throwing up, I don't know, twice a week, six and a half years into Overeaters Anonymous, I was throwing up up to six times a day and needed major surgery on my esophagus. It didn't get better just by going to meetings. Um, it got worse. So here's Bill and, you know, Abby's talking to him about God and Bill says, well, I'd always believed in a power greater than myself. I often pondered these things. I wasn't an atheist, but when it came to a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut. So he believed in God, but not a personal God. So he was what I would say, a practical atheist. And that's how I was. I believed in God, but it made no difference in my life. It's like, I believe there's a king in England, but it makes no difference to my life. Now, if I, I guess if I move to Britain and, you know, it might make a difference in my life, but it doesn't make a difference that I believe it. Um, and that was me. I believed in God, but I wasn't really interested in anything he had to say to me. In fact, I didn't think he would have anything to say to me. So here's Bill, same position. Um, and how did Ebby describe God? Love, superhuman strength and direction. We need it all, right? If a God just is power and direction, but doesn't care about me, how am I ever going to feel safe with that God? And if a God is love and direction, but isn't strong enough to overcome this illness, that doesn't do me any good. And a God who loves me and is strong but I don't have any guidance about what to do. But this God that we all have access to is all three. And then he talks about the role that religion played in his life. And he said, yeah, I adopted those parts which, which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. Isn't that how a lot of us use religion or use these 12 steps? We'll do the parts that are convenient and not too hard and yeah, we don't really need to do the rest. And then it seems he just started doing some soul searching. It was like, okay, 
maybe I want to believe in God, but he had some things that got in his way. So legitimate things he had to deal with. Remember, he'd been to war. So he said the war, the burnings, you know, I can only imagine what that means. Burning, seeing like towns burned down, chicanery. Um, he said, these made me sick. And he says, judging from what I'd seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss. So Bill had witnessed a lot of calamity and it was, and he was stuck. Like, why is all that suffering? And, you know, he, it seems like he earnestly questioned it. And what did Eddie do? You know, he didn't do what I probably would have done was like get into this big theological debate about, well, does God cause suffering or does he allow it? And is it that he doesn't do any of that stuff? He just basically says, Bill, I don't know. All I know is that God is good. And when I surrendered my life to him, the obsession to drink was just taken out of me. And, you know, I guess that's how we can deal with certain things, right? Like, I don't know why God allows human trafficking. That's one that just breaks my heart. Why, why doesn't God like smite all the traffickers with, you know, a plague of boils? I don't know. Um, and I have to be content to not know, you know, the side of heaven. Hopefully then I will. But now I have to just say, God's smart. God's got a plan. And it's okay if I don't understand it. And what does Ebby tell him? God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I had admitted defeat then. So after admitting defeat, I had been raised from the dead, right? Isn't that us in the illness, like living dead people? Um, he said, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Rescued, rescued from the scrap heap to a life of meaning. And he says, has this, had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. Now on page 55, it says deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. We have the idea of God inside us, but we're not God. God is like a separate entity, they're saying. And he said, I had no power. There was no power in me, but there was a power that I was able to access. And then Bill's open-minded and he's like, maybe these religious people are right after all because Ebby's not the same Ebby. And he says, I love this line. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. Great tidings just means good news, good news. And he says, okay, when we think of miracles, I mean, we think of things like, I don't know, Moses parting the Red Sea, things like that. And they're saying, yeah, that's all in the past. Well and good, great, good for Sunday school. But here sat a miracle directly across my kitchen table. A man who was once one way and now is another way. That's the kind of miracle I can be interested in. So he said, okay. He, like he's totally different on page 12. He says his roots grasped a new soil. It's like he had a root transplant. He had become a different person and he's still not sure, you know, God, like it's still, he's a little prickly. 
And his friend says, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And he says, that did it. All I had to do was be willing. Nothing more is required to make of me to make a beginning. So willing to believe that there's a God. Okay, what does that mean in practical terms? How can I be willing to believe? And I think it means we can do something like this. We can say, God, I don't know if you exist, but I hope you do. And if you do exist and you do care about me, like these people say, I really need some help. And in the meantime, I'm going to live my life the way I think you would want me to. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to help others. And I'm going to hope and pray that you are real. And if you are, please, please help me. Willingness. We can be willing to believe that there's a God who can restore us to sanity. And Bill says, I was convinced God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. What does enough mean? Enough to do the work, not sit there and say, God, okay, I'm willing to believe you exist. Now come out of your bottle where you exist and be my genie and do whatever I want and then go back in your bottle. Uh-uh. We have to be willing to do the work. And how does Bill describe it? He says, at long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. He said, you know, before he says how blind I had been. Scales of pride and prejudice. That's what was blocking him from really seeing God. Um, what's pride? Thinking too much of myself or thinking of myself too much. And prejudice? Thinking too little of others and thinking of others too little. And he says, yeah, when I was younger, I needed and wanted God. And he came, I sensed his presence, but it was blotted out by worldly clamors. So if we want to blot God out, that's all we have to do. Become too concerned with things, with our clothes, with our jobs, with, you know, different things, worldly clamors, instead of spending time with our loving creator. He says, okay, I went to the hospital. Why? He said, I showed signs of delirium tremors. That's why he went to the hospital, you know, because it was physically dangerous for him not to withdraw from alcohol without medical help. And he says there, right there in the hospital, I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. So it's God, I believe you're good or at least you can't mess up my life any worse than I mess it up myself. Take all of me, not just my food, take all of me. I place myself 100% under your care and direction. And then what did he do? He cleared away the wreckage of his past and look how he describes it. I ruthlessly faced my sins. He recovered in the Oxford group. They called him sins. We call him character defects, same thing. Um, ruthlessly. So he was hard on himself. Being hard on ourselves gets a bad rap these days. You know, our therapists are always saying to us, to us, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. Or, you know, we talk about perfectionism. So then when we call someone and do a 10 step and say, oh, you know, it was my perfectionism, why I did that, then, you know, it's a subtle way of getting our fellows to say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. And he says, I ruthlessly 
faced everything. It's okay to be hard on ourselves because we know that once we ruthlessly face these things and go to God and ask him to remove it and make amends, we're good. We're good with God. There doesn't have to be any shame or guilt, but we have to be ruthless in facing these things. And he says, once he did that um, and he made his amends, that's it. He didn't drink anymore. And then he just, he gives a little advice. Um, he says, okay, I've got this new God consciousness within, right? That's a promise of this program. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. It says common sense becomes uncommon sense. That's a result. That's a fruit of working this program, right? We get, um, we intuitively know what to do. And then there's a section, how to handle doubt if I'm unsure. It says, I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking, that means praying, only for direction and strength to meet my problems as God would have me. So when we're not sure what to do, you know, we don't uh, pick up the phone and call 17 people. We get quiet and we ask God for direction and strength. And then Edby tells him, when you do these things, you will enter upon a new relationship with your creator and have the elements of a way of living which answer all your problems. And I think that's really the mission statement of this book, right? To get a new relationship with our creator where he's God, I'm not, and I'm surrendered to him. And by working this program, I have the elements of a way of living which answer all my problems, my marriage problems, my work problem, my kid problems, my health problems, you know, all my problems. This program teaches me how to deal with them. And they, so it kind of tries to encapsulate it. Belief in the power of God, not the existence of God, the power of God, plus willingness, honesty, and humility. These are the essential requirements. If we just have willingness, honesty, and humility without the power of God, then we're just doing like self-improvement work. And I didn't have the power to improve myself. I couldn't stop eating on my own. And I couldn't stop being a mean, nasty person on my own either. And it tells us, okay, it's simple, but it's not easy. We have to pay a price. The destruction of self-centeredness, the root has to be destroyed. Remember when he saw Ebby, he says, his roots grasped a new soil. It's like we have to be transplanted from the garden of self into the garden of God and our fellows. We need a root transplant. And he's in the hospital still. And the thought came. I love how it says that the thought came. It's like God's directing his thoughts um, that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They in turn might work with others. Well, little did he know that shortly after this, what was it about six months or so after? I, I don't, I'm not sure the time, but it wasn't real long. He was in Ohio on business, just like Ebby had been to New York on business. He's in Ohio on business. And that thought that came to him came to fruition. 
because he freely gave to Dr. Bob and helped him. And then they in turn helped together alcoholics number three and on and on and on to us here together on a Monday night. Um, bottom of 14, one of the most critical paragraphs in the book. It says, faith without works was dead and how appallingly true for the alcoholic and the compulsive eater. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through, and if it were fill in the blank, two things, I would say prayer and meditation, but that's not what it says. Through work and self-sacrifice for others, he couldn't survive the certain trials and low spots and would surely drink again, guaranteed to drink if I don't enlarge my spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. Now, other people may be able to enlarge their spiritual life through, you know, prayer and meditation. And believe me, I am not um, putting down prayer and meditation. That is also essential for our spiritual lives. But we are people who grow spiritually through work and self-sacrifice for others. That is how our spiritual muscle grows. So um, Bill says, yes. I went, I did this work, but sometimes I was plagued by ways of self-pity and resentment. So it doesn't mean that once we do this work, we're going to just feel on cloud nine all the time. We're still going to get resentful. We're still going to get self-pity. And he says, okay, when all other measures failed, so I'm assuming he did a 10 step and looked for his part. He said, work with another alcoholic would save the day. It is a design for living that works in rough going. It's almost like, you know, I guess there's like certain types of cars, right? There's Fords and Chevys and they're made different ways, like different things, you know, cause them to just run a little bit differently. And when God made us, the, the addicts on his like assembly line, he created us in such a way that when we're plagued with self-pity and resentment, helping others will make us feel better, will make us feel amazingly lifted up and set on our feet. So he commences with like a few final things. He says, um, the joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. So they're telling us we can be happy even when things are hard. Um, I have one of my kids has pretty much ghosted my husband and I haven't really talked in six weeks or so years ago that would have devastated me now I can honestly say I am happy anyway I'm not you know happy about that situation but bad situations hard situations in my life do not define me and do not dictate my happiness and they tell us there's scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. That's what's so beautiful about this fellowship. If we have a problem, odds are, in fact, I'm thinking now, I have a friend of mine in recovery who didn't talk to her daughter, who's same age as mine, for a really long time. And she got through it fine. And now they're talking. So that gives me hope. But the point is, if you've got a problem, there's probably somebody in this fellowship who has had the same problem and maybe has even mastered it and can help you along so that when you master it, you can help someone else along. Page 16, last page of his chapter, 
he says, um, an alcoholics in his, in his cups is an unlovely creature, but our job is to love them anyway. That's the measure of my spiritual experience. I can tell how rotten I'm doing when I look at someone who's maybe struggling and don't feel love for them. That's when I realize I still have a long way to go in my spiritual development. And they say, recovery is fun. You know, yes, we're earnest, but you know, we should have fun. Like we shouldn't be coming to meetings with like long faces. We come here, it's fun. And we put our lipstick on, you know, because it's fun. Um, but they say underneath faith has to work 24 hours and that we, we don't have to look any further for utopia because we have it. Utopia, an ideal place. And he ends by saying, each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen, when he was still drinking and planning on drinking more, but his friend intervened, or God intervened by sending his friend. My friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies in itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And whenever I talk on this chapter, I always end by saying like, I personally, and I think all of us are just so blessed and grateful to be part of that circle that, you know, Bill was instrumental in starting. And with that, I pass. Thanks.